Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover Book 5 of The Dark Tower, Wolves of the Kala, Part 2, Chapters 5 through 9. Let's start the show! As the Cotet continue to figure out how they will defend Kala Bryn Sturgis, Roland hears a tale from the past that may shed some light on additional weapons for the upcoming fight. Meanwhile, Eddie hears a story from an old-timer who was present at a previous fight with the wolves and hears some key information, which we don't. Jake's shine allows him to figure out something about Susanna, and he goes to Roland for advice on what he should do. Roland visits the leader of the Manny and explores a cave with an interesting feature. After a visit to the general store where they gain a bit of celebrity, Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi meet back with Roland and Callahan to hear the rest of the priest's story. As you can tell from my book recap, Jay, there is a lot of tales going on in this section. In fact, three out of the five chapters we read in this section have tale in the name. Yeah. As we've seen a lot in the recent books, lots and lots of storytelling. Yep. And I was kind of thinking of the fact that we are three quarters away through this book at this point, and it feels like all we've had in this meal of a book is appetizers. It's like we decided to read Wolves of the Kala, and, but it's in a tapas restaurant. <laughs> and this is a book about the so-called wolves. And we haven't so much seen a whisker or a paw at this point, And we just... Where, where are the wolves, Jay? Where are these wolves? I, I know the wolves are coming. I know we're counting down the days to their arrival. And now we're, we're you know, our characters are prepping for their arrival and how they're going to fight back. But I'm getting a little impatient. Yes. Although I, I'm still enjoying the story. Yeah, I'm enjoying the story. And there's a lot of good stories in this section. The, the Tale of Grey Dick, which is a, a good story. Um, sort of a Daughters of the American Revolution group here that has kept the traditions alive from the past. And they remember the days when they used to throw plates and we get that story um, and we get the rest of Callahan's story, which is good. I mean, there's a lot of good mm -hmm. stuff happening here, but again, I'm tired of driving to the fireworks factory. I just want to get to the fireworks factory already. Give me the wolves. Yeah. But again, it's good stuff. It's just not quite there yet. And one of the things that King does to fill in this sort of idea of lots of tales and lots of storytelling is more and more and more book references. We're just filled with them in these chapters. Yep. Overflowing. We had mentioned how book 4.5 was a little bit of a mystery novel um, until we figured out it was a police procedural towards the end there. But we get a lot of literary detectives in this section. They they talk about James Bond, Perry Mason, Travis McGee, Hercule Poirot, and even Miss Fucking Marple. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, when when we're hearing one of uh, Callahan's stories, uh, he, he thinks the cavalry is going to come and he thinks of Sherlock Holmes and H.G. Wells, which is interesting because, you know, when you think of cavalry, you usually think of people coming in on horses, right? Like that's literally what the, yeah. what the cavalry is. Right. And instead, he's thinking of 
of detectives. Um, and it's always, even though all, most of these had time on screen, he's thinking of them in a literary fashion. He's not thinking of their film adaptations. He's thinking of their their actual literary pieces. You know, Travis McGee, there was no movies of that. Um, Sherlock Holmes, obviously, but was. But the rest of them, like, they both have their literary piece as well. So, uh, again, King drawing on that literary aspect of uh, detectives through this. Yeah, one of the interesting references is that there's mention of Ben Mears. And obviously, Callahan knows Ben Mears. He was the author who came to Salem's Lot and was embroiled in the entire plot of that story. But when Callahan is telling the story and mentions Ben Mears and mentions he goes Todash and ends up in Mexico, and that's how he gets to be there for Ben Mears' funeral, that's when Eddie says, wait a second. I know that author. I've read his book, yeah. you know, and we're like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> a little weird. Things are really starting to crisscross here. And, and it's not weird just because, again, Eddie's showing off his literary knowledge. He knows yet another author mm-hmm. that we did. We, we wouldn't be expected for him to know. But again, the fact that a fictional character in another book is a real person and and Eddie somehow knows him. Yep. Very odd. So he also mentions an author named Alan Drury at one point. Um, and I had to look up uh, Alan Drury because that's not a name I'm familiar with. But he was a political writer in the 50s and 60s. Um, he had been a reporter. And then he worked, um, after being a reporter, he started writing novels that were based on some of the what he saw when he was uh, reporting in Washington, D.C., so he wrote a book called Advise and Consent, which is a, a, his most famous book, and it led to a series of books. And what I found interesting about this was the books followed the nomination of a secretary of state, and then later on it followed the president. And we got to a book called Preserve and Protect. And at mm. the end of that book, there is an assassination attempt on the president, and the book ends with a cliffhanger, and you're not sure what happens. Well, the next two books that Alan Drury wrote look at different timelines of what would happen depending on who was assassinated at the end of that book. So one follows along um, with the president being uh, assassinated. The other one follows along with somebody else being assassinated. And it looks at what would happen in two different cases based on that. And that's really interesting in terms of what we've seen in the rest of these Dark Tower books, right? Like how... yeah how things can change. So the reference to Alan Drury by Stephen King was pretty intentional here Mm -hmm. uh, for what maybe he's not as obscure of an author as I think, but he's definitely not a household name today as he was in the 50s, 60s. In fact, his book was out of print during most of the 2000s before it was just recently released on eBooks again. So Stephen King seems to be hinting at, hey, look what would happen if events took different turns and and what might have happened, and it did with Alan Drury. So another literary reference I wanted to point out. Even if Alan Drury was out of print, he probably could have called his old buddy Alan and said, hey, can you send me an autographed copy (laughs) of the last book in your series? Because I can't find it in the bookstores anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's Stephen King, for crying out loud. Right. The other sort of obvious book reference is to John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men when Callahan mm-hmm. tells his story about the two men who have come to to attack him and, and beat him up. The Hitler brothers. The Hitler brothers, exactly. And they're referred to as George and Lenny of, of Mice and Men fame because there's the 
the the tall one and the short one and uh one of them seems pretty smart and the other one seems sort of dopey of course king puts a little twist on it in fact that the big one's the smart one and it's the little one who's dopey yeah and it's for that that reversal that i thought that a more appropriate analogy would have been lenny and squiggy of the laverne and shirley show <laughs> hello cheryl <laughs> So to transition, I mean, the odd thing that Jay's already pointed out is that the book references to Stephen King's own works is sort of unusual, to say the least, mm -hmm. uh, with the Ben Mears piece. But maybe the more interesting one is that Stephen King basically pitches his 112263 book at the end of this section. Yeah. Like, there's a two-page section in which Callahan sort of describes exactly what happens in that book. Yeah, it's like Stephen King's elevator speech for 112263 is in this book. I nearly fell out of my chair when I read that because the first time I read this book was the year that it was published. And 112263 was but a glimmer in Stephen King's eye if it existed at all in his imagination. Well, it looks like more and than then, a glimmer at this point. <laughs> yeah. And now I've since read that book, loved that book, and to see the plot of that book so succinctly summarized here in Callahan's words was it, it just blew me away yeah it was pretty stunning to see it that detailed and it was obviously something he's thought about the Alan Drury piece is another piece that's very similar to that so it's interesting that within the Salem's Lot sequel which was Callahan's mm -hmm. story that sort of plugged into here we then get the preview of the eleven twenty two sixty three. it makes me think that if I go back and reread 112263, there's probably something in there that's going to be the 2022 release from Stephen King that comes out. Ah, that's how he's just paying it forward, like, yeah. book after book. And that, that's something that King's explored multiple times. At least um, one more that I could think of is The Dead Zone. Sure. That, that was yep. his version of what if you could go back in time and kill Hitler before Hitler became the leader of Germany. So that was him playing with the idea of if you could see into the future, take care of the problem in the present with the, the magic doors and Todash and, and the fantasy elements that are in the Dark Tower, our characters are actually able to jump around in time and space. And so now King is, this is the first time he's actually put that on the page, right? Yep. Of somebody traveling back in time before some big event happens to change the outcome and then he explores it in its full <laughs> right in in eleven twenty two sixty three. yep which in and of itself is also a big has a big section of it in it as well because the characters mm -hmm. they meet in there are the children from it yeah and it it, it takes place in dairy it takes place in dairy exactly so we get these interesting stories that callahan tells us but what is his role here like why why bring in callahan what's What's his role within the Dark Tower series? Why does it have to be Callahan, and why is he there? We start to get a little bit of hints as to his purpose in the book, and that's when we find out that Walter, the man in black, has actually circled around, mm -hmm. and after Callahan dies, he ends up at the way station, and he ends up in the way station a few days after Jake and Roland have met at the way station, and and Walter basically says, you're going to be my failsafe. I don't think that Roland's going to survive, but if he does, I want him to meet you and you're going to be the one who destroys him. But we know that that's what 
Walter has him there for and why he's in the book. But why does it have to be Callahan, Jay? Do you have any ideas as to why this character? I'm not sure, but I see a lot of very strong parallels to the character of Jake. Hmm. We kind of talked about that when we were discussing book one, and we asked a similar question. Why did the man in black choose Jake over any random person? And we knew that Jake ultimately had a lot of qualities that would appeal to the gunslinger as a, you know, the, the figure of a son, the figure of, of, a, of an apprentice, um, a new companion in his life where he had had no companions for a very long time. And Jake was ultimately a trap set by the man in black because for all of those reasons and more, if the gunslinger didn't fall for the trap, it was going to be devastating. So it was going to hurt him. And if he did fall for the trap, then the man in black gets his way. Yeah. So either way, I think he's satisfied to some degree, right? And I think there are a lot of parallels that map to Callahan. Like Callahan wouldn't occupy the same space for Roland. You know, he's a, an adult like Roland. I wouldn't say they're the same age because Roland's like, I don't know, a thousand <laughs> years old or something. Right. But, but uh, they're both adults. So that, that part is different. But I think there's, there seems to be like almost like they operate on a level that's very much at a peer level. Hmm. And I think that there's a mutual respect and even admiration, maybe more so from Callahan to Roland than from Roland to Callahan. But there's something that Roland respects in him. And therefore, there's a reason for Roland to trust him and maybe let his guard down. And while Callahan himself might not be a direct threat, something about Callahan might expose Roland to danger. And that's why we don't know what that is, but Walter says, you're my failsafe. You're going to cause Roland some serious trouble in the future. And so that's, that's pretty foreboding. Yeah. And (laughs) it seems to be beyond just that black 13 will cause him problems, but almost that you and you yourself, your presence and the actions that you do or do not take are going to cause Mm -hmm. problems. Um, Yeah. Which, yeah, it, it sounds like he's damned if he does damned if he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And it's gotta be tough for Callahan. I mean, you know, he's led this, you know, Salem's lot alone. He's dealing with vampires. Uh, And then as we've seen in this book, he escapes from the vampires only to be still haunted by vampires followed by the low men in coats and then bouncing in and out of other worlds sees his friend die. And then that's used as a trap to get Callahan to show up at the Sombra corporation, which we've heard of in a mm-hmm. few other books. And then Callahan realizes that he's in trouble and they're going to do something bad to him. You know, they're going to kill him slowly with the AIDS virus, but who knows what else is going to happen to him. And he, decides to take the best way out, which is auto-defenstration, and throw himself out the window, which sort of harkens back to the stand in which, um, I forget which what the female character's name was who worked for uh, the good side, and she was sent to spy on Randall Flagg, and she ends up getting close to him, and he discovers that she's a spy, and she ends up throwing herself through a window and slashing her neck on the... Uh, on the glass, glass so that she won't give up um, any information to Randall Flagg. And I remember how furious he is that, that she was able to get close to him and kill herself before she can. 
And I sort of got that same feeling in this scene when you can tell how upset the the low men are when when Callahan throws himself out the window with the defenestration. Yeah, that that's something that King uses to affect here and there. Uh, I think it's very powerful that he he seems to portray his heroes as willing to sacrifice themselves for their cause, and that is one of their greatest strengths over the villains of the story. The villains all ultimately are cowards to a mm. degree. Even the most powerful ones would never kill themselves to avoid being captured, to avoid being questioned. But the heroes are willing to, they know that as soon as I allow myself to live one second longer, yep. the game's up and my side loses. So it's better that I die by my own hand or by my own broken window, <laughs> whatever the case may be, um, and let the game continue. And But it also fits right in with King's style. You know, the idea of killing yourself on broken glass or by jumping out of a, you know, high-rise building um, and falling to the street <laughs> below, uh, you know, that, that's, that fits right in with uh, his usual motifs and stuff. So everyone who's been pulled from, I guess, our world has ended up becoming a gunslinger in Roland's quartet, and they've already hinted the fact that Callahan seems to be part of their quartet. They seem to be sharing Kef and a lot of the memories, mm -hmm. and all of them seem really okay with Callahan and his role with them. So I guess the question is, do you think that Callahan is going to become a gunslinger? I mean, it seems unlikely that a priest with as far as we know, no ability to shoot a gun could become a gunslinger. And yet we've probably thought the same thing about Odetta and Eddie and Jake. And I wonder if Callahan is on that path as well, if he's going to become part of the quartet. It's an interesting question. I think that Callahan has already displayed a lot of the qualities that Roland might look for in an apprentice, but he's also, he's also lived a complete life that had nothing to do with being a gunslinger. Mm -hmm. He has he has his own strengths and his and his own form of that steel that that we see in the other characters, but he doesn't come across as the type of person who relishes in violence mm. the way that the gunslingers in the stories that we've read or the apprentice gunslingers do. When that coldness comes over them and they have that singular focus and their aim is deadly and sure and they want nothing more than to engage in battle. Like, I, I don't, I have a harder time seeing Callahan taking that on himself. Right. And, uh, and that might only be because he has lived into his adulthood as a priest and as somebody who, you know, has had his own struggles, but none of the formative training that a gunslinger would have. I think you were on it with that enjoy piece because we've seen how Jake and Susanna and Eddie are starting to get that cold steeliness and eddie in this book is itching for the fight yeah and he wants it like he wants there to be a battle and war and he wants to prove himself as a gunslinger um and you've seen that with jake and Susanna to a lesser extent but still the same way like they're devoted to the tower they're devoted to the next step and they're okay with with having to draw guns if possible and you're right i haven't seen that with callahan yet but the fact that he's part of the quartet makes me think that maybe there's more to his role than just telling them these stories in Colibrin Sturgis and 
showing them Black 13 that maybe there's going to be more to this character um, just because they are so close. And I don't know. I mean, maybe that's moderately fascinating. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it all boils down to being moderately fascinating indeed. Yeah. So the other thing that's interesting about this is as we're talking about Callahan perhaps joining the Cotet, we get lots of hints in this section that the Cotet may possibly be broken. Um, when Jake uses his shine to figure out that Susanna is pregnant um, mm-hmm. and is going on these nocturnal adventures that he gets drawn into, he's surprised, but then he's shocked because then he realizes that both Eddie and Roland already knew that. And that he was the one that was left out and he feels somewhat betrayed. Um, and he wonders if the cotet's broken because they're keeping secrets from each other. Yeah, he feels genuinely concerned about the cohesion that the cotet brings. And I think one thing that this ha- allows to happen is, or one thing that, that happens uh, as a result of this accusation that Jake makes to Roland is that we get this really great character building moment between the two mm-hmm. of them where Jake flatly accuses Roland of doing the wrong thing of keeping secrets that he shouldn't have kept and, and letting people go on in ignorance when that information would have been useful um, or perhaps staved off danger. And it seems like Jake is the wiser one in this particular scenario. And, and there, there are moments when we get, some of Roland's inner thoughts and he thinks like this was just so much easier when I was by myself (laughs) you know like I could do what I wanted I didn't have to explain my decisions to anybody I just came and went and followed people across deserts and all that stuff and it, it everything was fine back then but I don't think he really believes that he just he's he's just like any other person when when things get difficult you wish that they weren't so difficult and this was a really difficult situation and roland recognizes that his decision was the wrong one that he made a bad call and it becomes even more obvious that it was a bad decision when Susanna tells everybody hey guys i think i might be pregnant (laughs) right and they're all so relieved that it's out in the open and they realize that nothing bad happened by discussing it and if they had just been more open about it, they, they never would have had any of this confusion or mistrust. Or Yeah, so it's it's twice in this book now where King is set up like if Roland confronts Eddie about Susanna's pregnancy and the fact that she has another personality, he's going to be so upset. And how am I going to control him? And what's he going to do? And he, he builds all this up, King does. And then mm-hmm. Roland and Eddie have their conversation and it's all fine. And he does it again yep. in this section where... Jake is super concerned about the cotet being broken. Like, I can't trust people and what's going to go on with the pregnancy and how come, you know, I, I have to go to Roland. But it really shows that the cotet's not really that broken. I mean, Jake and Roland have this great conversation and, you know, Jake goes to him as his din, as his din right. and says, I'm going to trust with whatever you tell me and I'm going to abide by it. And Roland respects that. And then Jake goes off and does that. And then, you know, Eddie. And Susanna are growing closer in this section. I mean, it's their first time that they get to share a room together. And the whole scene at Took's general store, like Roland's not there, but the rest of the Cotet are. And they seem very close there. They're laughing and playing off of each other and seeing themselves as celebrities. So we get this whole buildup again from King, like Cotet is broken. The Cotet is broken. The Cotet is broken. 
And then, as you said, by the time they get to the end and Susanna's well enough to say to everybody, I'm pregnant, and it, they all seem to come together that way. I mean, it ends as a sort of a cliffhanger. We we end the section with her crying, but you get the feeling like, hey, we're all family and we're going to get through this. Yeah, and it seems to me, at least, that the contact was never broken. I think what we were really experiencing was Jake's realization that adults don't always know everything. And he's gotten to the point in his childhood where he's like, oh, I used to think everybody older than me knew what they were doing. And now I realize even somebody who I hold with such high regard as Roland sometimes messes up, sometimes doesn't know what he's doing. And there, there's a, a moment where Jake is appalled and frightened because Roland is ashamed. And Jake always thought that shame was reserved for people who didn't know what they were doing. Mm. And the thought, the possibility that Roland doesn't know what he's doing, that he's not 100% in control and on top of things, I think that's something that would shake anybody to their core. And if you're also Jake's age and you're just starting to realize this, that most people, basically everybody, doing the best they can and messing up left and right on a daily basis. That's uh, yeah, that's a big, it's a big moment for, for a kid. And uh, I think that's really what this is all about. It's like, Oh, the content is still bound together by Ka and all that stuff, but we're also a bunch of imperfect dopes <laughs> and we're going to make mistakes. So uh, the, the funny thing about the end of that section, when they're right before Susanna says she's pregnant is, you know, they're sort of talking about what the cotet is and we are cotet and we sit together on tet, Roland said in council and uh, he's about to go to bed. And then you hear, wait. And King says it was Susanna. It had been so long since she'd spoken that they had nearly forgotten her. And I was just like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep talk about hanging a lantern on something there king yeah we've been, we've been talking about that for five books and here we are three quarters of the way through the sixth one and like oh yeah look at that we practically forgot we've about marginalized this character. this character oh man yeah so um i sense that that's going to be a turning point though the fact that king calls it out mm-hmm um, the fact that Susanna reveals that she's pregnant, so this is something out in the open, is going to be, you know, while it was sort of a plot point for a little bit, like it's going to have to be a major plot point now. And the next book's called Song of Susanna, so hopefully that this will be the last we have Susanna as a mar marginalized character. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> All right, well, we have gone through our main topics. Obviously, there was a lot happening in this section, but it's really building us up to the next section, which is the wolves. So we're getting very, very close, Jay. So before we get yeah. into the next section of the wolves, let's talk about some fun stuff. All right, fun stuff. So the first thing that stood out for me as something to talk about during our fun stuff section was that chapter nine of Wolves of the Kala has 20 parts. Why didn't King rewrite this so that it had 19 parts? <laughs> I mean... That's just leaving money on the table, King. What are you doing? Yeah, you got to be faithful to the brand there, King. I mean, every other <laughs> paragraph has something about 19 in it. Why not make the whole 
chapter to have 19 parts. In fact, do that for all of them. Really bash us over the head with it. I mean, King has written chapters that were like two words long. Yeah. I'm sure he could have rearranged some of his content a bit so that instead of 20 parts, he could have had 19. Yep. He can't even self-edit. Not only do I... (laughs) (laughs) Can't even self-edit. So when we first meet Walter in book one, yeah, he makes some references to uh, our world that Roland is totally confused by. And I have, a, I think he talks about Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra uh, as a musical cue. And, you know, Roland has absolutely no idea what's going on. Well, he does sort of the mm-hmm. same thing with Callahan. He mentions Hall and Oates. So King's leaning into some light rock roots here. So we had Elton John and Callahan's story. And then when Walter, yep. when Walter meets Callahan, he says, I can't go for that. No can do. And I just, I just like Walter. He's so playful. So it was, it was fun to have him back if, if only for a little short time here. Yeah. He is a fun character. He's always been a fun character. I think the fact that we only get him in small doses, you know, sort of amplifies that, sure. but he's kind of like the Hulk in the Marvel movies. If you have Hulk as a secondary character, Hulk's great. Yep. But when Hulk is the main character, Hulk not great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't want to see uh Walter's origin story that results in him being a clone of his father or something like Boba Fett. Like that would be just horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it it was good to uh it's good to have Walter back. Although I thought it was a little bit of a heavy-handed retcon to have Walter have this bleeding like Mm. eye scar carved into his forehead and that other leader the other high-ranking member of of the insombra insombra sayer i think his name is like he also has the same mark so it it seems really straightforward that any high-ranking lieutenant of the crimson king is marked this way it's a way for everybody else to know you got to listen to this guy. But we spent a lot of time with the man in black and Walter and people saw him and nobody ever mentioned yeah. this before. This seems like a really big thing to just not be visible. And who knows, maybe it's it's slightly magical. This is a fantasy story at its heart. So, you know, when he went through Tull and he did his magic dance and resurrected the weed eater, maybe those people couldn't see right didn't matter but i mean the reality is that king hadn't thought of the crimson king yet and therefore there wasn't in the book but he did go back and revise book one book one could have he could have added that so another thing i really liked was when uh, we first are shown the oriza plates in great detail one of the descriptors we get is that they have suicidal keenness Mm. so i just immediately switched to my inner homer voice and went "Mm, suicidal keenness (laughs) i don't know why but suicidal keenness like kind of gives me that same reaction of like something's delicious so yeah so these ladies can really fling those plates pretty good from what we've seen so far yeah this seems pretty intriguing i mean the story that grand pair tells eddie involves one of the people actually killing the wolf with one of these plates um you know 
people think that Grand Pair is the one who did the killing, but it wasn't him at all. Uh, he was just there when it happened. Yep. So we know that they're effective. At least they have been once before. So it'll be interesting to see Roland gathering up his uh, team of plate-throwing assassins to uh, mm-hmm. to help out in the battle. And when we see the one demonstration, it, they do seem pretty dangerous. Yeah, I get I get the so. uh, odd job in Goldfinger sort of throw the bowler and cut off the mm-hmm. cut off the top of a statue. In this case, a stuffy yeah. guy. Nice, exactly. nice to see the stuffy guys back. When when the felt bumps against the already severed head of the statue <laughs> and then the the head falls off, it's it's a pretty convincing effect. Yes. The only thing scarier is when Roland goes up to the farmhands who happen to witness it and say, I know you're going to want to tell people what you saw. Don't or I'll kill you. Yeah. And they're both like, okay, now. <laughs> I really have been enjoying these like hairpin turns in personality and, and forcefulness that all of these characters, mm. uh, like all of the, the main characters exhibit from time to time, that they're, they're just kind of, you know, easy going go with the flow but when something goes against what they want when somebody insults them or 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 pushes them a little too far they don't just respond in kind they respond like a hammer yeah. and you know, maybe it's a little bit of the fact that i was like you know grew up watching dirty harry movies and stuff like that that probably not <laughs> not so good for my mental picture of how the world works but it's interesting when, you know, like Susanna grabs Took's thumb and bends it in, you know, under his hand and says, if you, if you do that one more time, you're going to lose this finger kind of thing. Like, cause she went from zero to a hundred in, yep. in a moment and Jake's done it. Eddie's done it a bunch of times and we kind of expect it from Roland, but even there it's still right. pretty, pretty jarring when he's like, he just kind of shambles up to those guys and says, Hey, yeah, enjoying the show. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to kill you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and it's effective. Mostly. 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 I believe his threat, but uh, gossip finds a way. So another thing I, I wrote down for fun stuff was that we are introduced to this new word, trum. Mm. I assume it's trum, not trum. Trum sounds weird, but so does trum. Uh, so we get this trum, and uh, I like it. Because it's this idea, as the grandparent says, if you could convince someone else to stick his head in a rock cat's mouth, you'd be Trump. So you can convince somebody to do something that they absolutely should, shouldn't should and don't do. want to do, then you're Trump. So I like that. And he uh, also teaches us another new word, throg, as in split three ways. <laughs> thought that was kind of interesting. Because yeah. I guess, you know, you got one line and you got split in half and then you split throg okay it, it works yeah grand has got some good stuff uh his story is very entertaining the only frustrating part for me was that we hear his whole story all the little bits every detail and then he gets towards the end and he has something to tell eddie and he whispers it and it's 19 words because of course it's 19 words mm-hmm. and eddie hears it but we don't and it's just frustrating the king has built up everything and then this is the piece that he chooses to hide from us this important piece of information i suppose that's going to play a part later on and we don't get to hear it Um, and then even later when eddie is with Susanna, 
and he's going to tell her. Suzanne's like, no, 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 you don't need to tell me. Let's tell Roland first. It's like, I want to know what that is. Don't hide stuff from me, King. Yeah. Are you keeping secrets? And long before we find out, because we still haven't found out, everybody else in the story knows. Mm -hmm. Because Eddie does eventually tell Roland, and they share it with Jake, and they share it with Susanna, and this all factors into their planning and everything like that. So this is a key piece of information, obviously. But for, I guess, the sake of dramatic effect? Yeah. Suspense? It's kept from us. Much like Roland's plans, because Roland says he's got two plans that he has to come up with. Uh, One for the townspeople and maybe even the quartet for them to follow. And then the real plan that he hopes that works, because he knows that his first plan will probably either get out or be discovered by the wolves. It's like, oh, I don't get to hear those? Please, don't hide stuff from us. But Yeah, tell us both plans. Yeah. I mean, like, Tyrion told us all of his plans. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it and we got to discover who the spy was when he yes. did a little uh game of thrones reference there for everybody who obviously knew what i was talking <laughs> about another good line that was in uh in this section was since time was toothless mm. but that's a really great way of saying a long time ago since time was toothless or a long time in the future. True. When time's so old that all of its teeth have yes. fallen out. This is a very timey-wimey section um, between the man in black sort of backing around and grabbing Callahan, who was in, what, 1983 when he gets pulled through? Uh, a few days after Jake is pulled through from 1977, there's some weird time stuff happening there. Um the doorway in the cave that Callahan mm-hmm. comes through that causes him to, even though he's dead, come into the world and be part of uh, Colin Sturgis now for many years. You know, he's sort of lost track of how many years he's been there. Yeah, it feels like he's been there for like 20 years or yeah, something. Yeah, he knows it hasn't been. It's probably only been eight, but he's not quite sure. I think the man he know, but but he doesn't. And it's just, it's interesting with all the time stuff that's going on. And there's even a couple of references to that, you know, time is softening, but there is time when time's okay. And I think there's even a notice when the sun actually sets in the West and they take note of that because it's the first time it's happened in a while that yeah, that the cardinal directions are correct for once. And I don't know if that means that things are settling back into the right way or if it just is a coincidence yeah. because it's just going to keep swinging in the, the wrong direction. A broken clock's right even twice a day, right? Yep. And the, the timey-wimey stuff... It can always make your brain hurt if you think too deeply about it. But I like the idea that Walter is sort of almost outside Mm. of time, that it seems like he can move around in time and space at will, which is why he finds his journey leading Roland on and on and on with his chase that, that, you know, we begin with in book one is so, so entertaining. Like he's so amused by all of this because he's like, yeah, he's following me around the desert. He's following me through Tull. He's following me for 12 years. I I can stop and go and do, I can do everything I need to do. And he thinks he's still following me across a desert, right? And that is funny. When you start, once we've, we're this far into the story and we realize what's really happening behind the scenes, the things that Roland isn't aware of. But 
we do know that this man or this half human um dies after the long night on the Golgotha, yep. right? We're we're pretty sure it's him. It's not like a fake skeleton stolen from a biology classroom or something. So that's like that's the time he dies, but because he sort of lives at all times, that doesn't matter to him either. No. Right? Because he's he's around again after that, and he's certainly around before that. So it sort of doesn't matter. Like the moment that he was born and the moment that he died are just two points on a timeline that he can just walk keep walking back and forth yeah. on. And that's kind of amazing. And I think he hints at somewhere along the way that that was the price. Like that was the power he was given. Like didn't we learn yeah. that went through the keyhole? Yep. Like that 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 is his true magic is that he's nearly immortal and he lives throughout, you know, in, in all times. But he only has one purpose, so. which is to get to that point and die. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like time's just more of a hamster wheel for him. Yep. The only time that seems to matter is the 30 days before the wolves come. Like, that seems to be the only things that's set in stone at, from a time perspective at this point. Um, and I'm assuming that it's set in stone. I mean, we, we get that information from Andy, and we have no reason to believe at this point that Andy's lying. But Roland seems to yeah. be counting on that. Like, I've got 30 days, I've got 22 days, I've got 21 days. So we'll see how that works out. So there's a great dad joke in this section when they're talking about flat tires and it's only flat on the bottom. I have to say, <laughs> as a dad, I thought that was a good joke and I will be using it on my kids. One more thing I had in the list of fun stuff was that I love it when Roland works blue. <laughs> when Roland is flirting with Rosalita, he makes a comment about how he wants to be rubbed. And he's like, yeah, you know, rubbed hard, rubbed soft, a little of both eases an aching joint. <laughs> Ah oh, man, Roland is like he's always the character with no sense of humor, the no imagination. He's he's slow witted and plotting, and here he is with this. Like every once in a while, it's like zing. Yep. It just it makes me appreciate it all the more when when Roland uh, lays down some truly funny <laughs> stuff. Yeah, it's nice to see uh, Roland have some happiness for the first time in hundreds of years, potentially since the woman in in tall yeah it's been a while since roland has had any any human like he's had companionship recently but like anything beyond just friends or the the semblance of a family yeah unless unless you want to count the spirit in the in the circle that started to su yeah. seduce him in the second book uh-huh but i'm guessing he probably doesn't look back on that fondly no, let, let, let's let's not even think of it yeah i had one more thing that i enjoyed um, the call of folk are taking a stand and they say that it's their dying hour. This is during grandpa's tale. And as they're watching the sunset and they're kind of, and they're kind of like assessing that as the minutes go by and the, the moment that they are going to face the wolves, they're thinking that this is their dying hour. And that reminds me of the line from Mad Max Thunderdome that die in times here. Ha. Love it. Love it. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, or join our Facebook group at 
facebook.com slash groups slash two guys dark tower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes and you may hear your review on a future episode. Next episode, join us as we cover book five of the Dark Tower, Wolves of the Kala, part three, which is titled The Wolves, Jay. We're getting close. Yes, it's The Wolves. The Wolves. And we'll be covering chapters one through four of that part. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. The wolves, Jay, we're getting close.